Take your Bibles this morning and let's turn to uh, Luke, first of all. I know your bulletin says John. We'll get there in just a moment. But let's turn, first of all, to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. We're going to read a couple of passages which I think are parallel and both describing the same event. And uh, we'll mostly be in John, but we'll, uh, we'll draw a little bit from Luke as well. So Luke chapter 24, and let's start reading in verse number 33. So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem. And of course, we're picking up right where we left off last week. These are the Emmaus too. Jesus has appeared to them on the road to Emmaus, vanished from their midst after they recognized him. And now they leave their dinner on the table. They rose up that very hour, returned to Jerusalem, and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And they told about the things that had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed that they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold, my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see, I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. Then he said to them, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem, and you are witnesses of these things. Now turn over to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, and let's read John's account of these, this same meeting. John chapter 20, and we'll begin verse number 19. John 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands. And reach your hand here, and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen, and yet have believed. Father God, would you fill me with your spirit now and help me to preach the word of God accurately and clearly and rightly? Would you give boldness where it's needed? Would you protect from anything being said ought not to be. And would you open all of our ears, Lord, that we might hear the word of God today. I pray 
for every person here, young and old. I pray for uh, every mother here today on Mother's Day. I pray for just everyone within the sound of my voice that uh, they would listen and hear and receive just exactly what you have for them today. Bless the message. Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit. We pray for his power and his, his working today. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is still Easter Sunday. I realize it's not Easter Sunday here in Randolph, Ohio in 2014. But in our text, you'll notice it's the same day at evening, verse number 19. So we're still on Easter Sunday. And what an eventful day it has been. I mean, just try to put yourself back and think about all the things that we've talked about that have taken place all in the same uh, few hours of time. Of course, the very fact of the resurrection is the thing that makes it the most amazing day in the history of the world. We know that. But think of all that has happened to this little band of believers since that mind-altering experience took place. First, the empty tomb was discovered early in the morning, but then the appearances began. First to Mary Magdalene, and then to the other women outside of the tomb. And then to Simon Peter, and we don't know where that happened or what was said there. We just know it happened because the Bible says it did. And then on the road to Emmaus, we talked about last week, where he's walking along seven miles between Jerusalem and Emmaus, and he's talking to Cleopas and his friend for seven miles. And he goes in and sits down for a meal and uh, reveals himself to them. And they jump up and they run all the way back, all the way back to Jerusalem. And now here in our text, we see that at the end of this day and evening, he now appears again, this time to uh, all of the disciples who are assembled there, locked in a room where they're gathered together, witless with fear, trying to hide from the authorities. Now, if we consider the account in Luke that we read and the account in John together, the picture we get is that Jesus just suddenly materialized in their presence, which I just think is such a cool thing, being a Star Trek aficionado. I'm thrilled with that idea. You know, the Bible says one day we're going to be like he is which means we'll be able to do the same thing. But he just appeared in their midst. Uh, He did not enter the normal way through the door. We know that because the Bible tells us here, it gives us this interesting little detail that the door was shut and it was locked. And all of a sudden, boom, there he was in the room. The door was still shut. No, just as he had simply vanished in Emmaus, he simply materialized here in the middle of the room. In the days since Easter, we have been looking at the things he said in these various appearances. Prior to Easter, we looked at the seven cross sayings, things he said on the cross. We've been looking at the things he said to these different groups and individuals. This will be the first time that he met with all of the disciples together as they're cowering in this locked room. And so I want us today to spend a few minutes just looking at the things he said. There's a lot of details here we're going to have to skip and save for another time, but let's look at his words. His words start in verse number 19. Of John. We'll be in John for the rest of this. John chapter 20, verse 19, he said, Peace be with you. Peace. I don't think there's too many things that we wish we had more than peace in this world. Wouldn't you agree? We are sorely lacking in peace. I read somewhere where people have tried, and I don't know how they've done this, but they've tried to estimate the amount of time that the world has known peace throughout all recorded history. Now, I don't know how you calculate that. I don't know what kind of an algorithm you're going to use. But some people have tried. One suggested that out of 365 days in each year, on average, 362 of them, down through the history of mankind, have been marked by war. I don't know how they come up with that, but it sounds likely. Another estimated that in all of recorded history, only about 250 years have known peace. 
To me, that sounds a little high. Sounds a little optimistic. Another estimated that in the entire history of the world, it's only known peace for about 26 days. And that sounds a little bit more likely to me. I mean, the fact is, we just look back over our lives, how much of our world has known peace in our lifetime. I found a blog posting dated May of 2013, so it's not very old. And it suggested that there are 74 nations where the United States, this is just about us, the United States is fighting or helping some force in some form of war. 74 places in the world where the United States is actively involved in some kind of conflict. And of course, that blog posting went on to point out that that's only the ones they admit to. There's probably more than that. Oh, we need peace. Don't we need peace? And it was just the same for that little group of disciples huddled there in that room. Their world was just as riddled with strife as is ours. They were living during Roman times. Conflict, strife, war, it was all around them. And suddenly Jesus appears in their midst and says, Peace, peace be with you. You know, they had heard him promise it in the past. In John chapter 14, he said, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He had said it in John chapter 16, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And now he stands in the midst of this little trembling group and declares that it is a reality that which he had promised before. And the reality is that his finished work on Calvary and that empty tomb on that first Easter Sunday morning uh, made peace possible. It's the only thing that makes peace possible. I think the Bible teaches us that it makes peace possible in, in, in three distinct ways. Let me just real briefly mention three different ways that Jesus brings peace. First of all, he brings peace with God. Positional peace. Paul said in Romans chapter 5 and verse number 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, as a sinner, I was once an enemy of God. And all who are sinners are enemies of God, and all who were sinners, which is all of us, were at one time at enmity with God. There could be no relationship between the sinner and a holy God. He has said in his word that he cannot be in the presence of sin. But when Jesus cried to tell us that it is finished from the cross, and the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom, and the entrance into the Holy of Holies was made open, access to God was now possible. All of a sudden, there was peace. Peace with God. And now the Christian, the one who has trusted Christ as Savior, the one who has repented of their sin and turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith, is no longer an enemy. As one who has been justified by the blood of Christ, our relationship with God is now one of peace. Peace with God. And I wonder this morning, do you know that? Do you have that? There's only one way to have it, and that's to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. To be born again. Have you done it? Because the Bible's clear. If you have not, you are an enemy of God. And you are headed for an eternity in hell. Peace with God. You can have it if you trust Christ and never need to fear anything again. There's another form of peace that Jesus 
provides for us, and that's the peace of God. Peace with God is the positional peace. The peace of God is a practical peace. Philippians, Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, Brother Jim quoted this verse this morning and stopped short of the very part that I wanted to draw attention to today. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Where the peace with God speaks of our standing before him. And the fact that there is no longer enemy that ex- enmity that exists between us, the peace of God, it just describes what the Christian life is like. The peace of God. No matter what comes into our life, this peace of God is available to us and works in us. It's always there. It's a peace that surpasses all understanding. It's, it's impossible to explain. And those who have experienced it, it's a body, explain it, other than the fact that it's a gift of God. It's just something that we get as believers, whatever we go through, whatever paths God leads us down, his peace is there flooding our soul, helping us to get through it. Some years ago, and it, it seems actually a long time ago now, our son Joshua nearly died from cancer. And that's hard to imagine as we see him sitting back there with his new, new baby and his lovely wife. and We think, how could that possibly have been? But it did happen, and it was a time of great distress, it was a time of great trouble. And uh, I, I can say with all honesty that there was a day when Beth and I actually thought, as much as it is possible for two people to think, that we had kissed our son goodbye for the last time. But I can also say to you, as a matter of absolute certainty, that there was a peace during those days. I cannot describe it, I cannot explain it, but in spite of all the pain, all the fear, all the distress, all the worry, there was peace! peace that surpassed all understanding. God gave it. I I rejoiced in it then. I rejoice in it to this day. And I wanted to have that when the hard times come. And they do come. Do you experience the peace of God which surpasses all understanding? The only way to have it. The only way to have it is to have the Savior in your life. Is to be born again. Only the saved enjoy the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. Do you have it? And then there's a third form of peace. That Jesus offers. And that's just simply peace on earth. Perpetual peace. Real peace. Peace in this world. It's not here yet. Not in any real and understandable way. There's still war all around us. If you've been reading the news lately, it seems to be getting worse every day. But there will be peace. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, is coming again. And he will establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. And he will rule and reign from there. And there will be peace. Peace on earth. Isaiah said it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills. And all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Peace. Can you imagine it? Peace. Jesus said something else. Look at verse number 21. Verse number 21, so Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. So peace. Secondly, purpose. Purpose. 
In one of the future sermons in this series that we're doing on these sayings after the resurrection, we're going to talk about the Great Commission. That's, that's a separate topic we'll talk about, uh, more fully anyway. He gave us a task to do, and we're to be busy about doing it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all recorded Jesus' giving of that commission in the Gospels and in Acts. Matthew said, Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and, lo, I am with you always. Mark said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Luke said, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. And Acts chapter 1 and verse number 8, if you were here for our study in Acts, you know that we quoted this over and over and over and over again. You shall receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. All those are the verses that we look at as the Great Commission verses. In this text here, in John, is John's recording of that. Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, some people might look at that and say, here's another example of a discrepancy in the Bible. And, of course, it's not, but some might say that. The thoughtful person will notice that this is being spoken here on Easter Sunday. And the other Great Commission verses that we, that we mentioned a minute ago, at least the best of our understanding, were, were mentioned 40 days later as he's getting ready to ascend into heaven. And so some will say, well, wait a minute, it can't be both. Was it here or was it there? Well, the Bible believer will say, of course it could be both. There's absolutely no reason why it couldn't have been both. Great teachers always repeat. Repetition is a, is a way to get a point across. And certainly Jesus did it. We have all kinds of examples of Jesus repeating. There's no reason why he might not have said it here and said it again every single day for those 40 days. It was just another example of that. But we're going to save most of our discussion of the Great Commission. Until then. I just want us to notice, uh, I just want us to notice two words in John's, John's version of it here. And that's the word as and so. As, and so Jesus made it clear that as he was sent, so we are sent. As God sent Jesus, so Jesus sends you and me. So how did God send Jesus? Well, a couple of verses help us. John chapter 17, when Jesus prayed, he said, As you have sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. Into the world. Into the world. We're not to remain cloistered. We're to go into the world. It's a key component of the Great Commission. We'll talk about it more in in that future day, but we need to remember it. We need to remember it this morning as we embark on this building program. As in just a little while, we're going to shovel, shovel in the dirt out here. This building is not meant as just a thing for us to gather together in and have great fellowship and wonderful times. As believers, we, of course, enjoy great fellowship and wonderful times. And that's one of the benefits we have of gathering together, but that's not its purpose. That's not its purpose. This building is an enhancement to our ability to reach Randolph and, and our community and our world for Christ. If all we do is sit in this building... We're disobeying Christ's clear commission here. He says we need to go into all the world. Into the world. As the Father sent me. How? Into the world. Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. So how did God send Jesus? He sent him into the world. He also sent him to save sinners. To save sinners. I don't think we talk about our mission statement enough here. Our mission statement is go. Make disciples. Do it everywhere, and do it until Jesus comes. We all ought to be able to say it. Go, make disciples, do it everywhere, do it until Jesus comes. That's our mission as a church. 
Everything else we do, every program, every message, every publication, every building project that we go through, everything must revolve around fulfilling that mission. We're gearing up to try once again to reach Randolph one door at a time. We've failed at that so many times in the past. I have failed at it so many times in the past. We're going to try again. Why? Because as Jesus was sent into the world to save sinners, so we are sent. We have a missions program where we support missionaries all over the world. Why? Because as Jesus was sent, so we are sent. We reach to the ends of the earth, having it as one of our goals to support a missionary in every country of this world. And we have seen success in reaching the North American, South American, Central American, European, African continents. We're working on Asia now. Why do we do these things? Because as Jesus was sent into all the world, so we are sent into all the world. And we're breaking ground on a new building addition this morning. Why? Not so we can just spend more time and have more comfortable access to our building. Not just so we personally will have greater access to restrooms and things like that, which we know will all be part of it. No. This building is only a tool, and it enables us to reach people for Christ more effectively, because as Jesus was sent, so we are sent. Peace. Purpose. Look at verse 22. Receive the Holy Spirit, Jesus said. Receive the Holy Spirit. Provision. The day of Pentecost is 50 days yet in the future from when he said this. And in Acts chapter 2, we read about that. It says, When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And that's what we always think of as the baptism of the Holy Ghost. That's exactly what took place there in Acts chapter 2. But that's still 50 days in the future from what we're seeing right here. So how are we to interpret this passage where Jesus says to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. How are we to interpret that? Well, one source explained it like this. He said, This was an earnest and first fruits of the more copious Pentecostal effusion. Does that help? I only read that because I thought it was such a hilarious way of saying it. In earnest and first fruits of the more copious Pentecostal effusion. I found a better one that has less big words in it. This reception of the Spirit was in anticipation of the day of Pentecost and should be understood as a partial, limited gift of knowledge, understanding, and empowerment until Pentecost 50 days later. So it was partial. It was limited. It was a, kind of a down payment on what was to come. You know, it's important to remember that the ministry of the Holy Spirit did not start on Pentecost. I think sometimes we think that, but it did not. Pentecost marked a change, a new day, a new way in which the Holy Spirit worked in the lives of believers. But the Holy Spirit was active even in the Old Testament. Time and time again we see in the Old Testament the Holy Spirit came upon somebody and empowered them, equipped them, enabled them for a particular service. We see this in the life of Samson. We see this in the life of David. We see this in the lives of his prophets. And, and, and over and over we see the Spirit come upon someone and empower them, equipping them to, to accomplish some task. Jesus had already explained this coming change in the Holy Spirit's work. He had explained what was going to take place at Pentecost. He said, I will pray the Father and he will give you another helper that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. Present tense. He's working now. Present tense. For he dwells with you. Present tense. He was with them then. And he will be in you. That's what was going to take place at Pentecost. That's what was going to be different. 
He dwells with you. That's the Holy Spirit's activity pre-Pentecost. He will be in you. That's his activity post-Pentecost. It is after Pentecost we speak of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. For only because of the finished work of Christ can we have access to God himself. And can God, the Holy Spirit, come and dwell within every believer. Do we believe that these disciples had what they needed? Could they have gotten through all the things they needed to get through over the next 50 days apart from the work of the Holy Ghost? Of course not. They needed it. The Holy Spirit empowers for God's service. Without the Spirit, we are powerless and unproductive. They were going to need the Holy Spirit's power over the next, uh, the next days before Jesus returned to heaven. Luke tells us that during this meeting, he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to understand our Bibles. And so they needed the Spirit. And so that in order that they might have what they needed, while they waited for the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, that ultimate baptism of the Holy Ghost, while they waited, he gave them this provision. So peace, purpose, provision. Let's look at verse 23. Verse 23, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Proclamation. Proclamation. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this particular passage. This is a hard passage. There's a lot of disagreement about it. But let me point out, it's one of the major areas of difference between those in the Roman Catholic tradition and those in the Protestant tradition. This verse right here, one of the major differences. To the Roman Catholic, this verse means that a priest actually has the authority to provide forgiveness of sins. And some of you have come out of Catholicism and know that in order to obtain forgiveness of sins, you go to a priest, you go to a confessional, you confess to that individual, and he either grants or does not grant absolution, remission. Bible-believing Christians do not accept that any man can forgive sins. That prerogative belongs to God. And God alone. We believe what Jesus was giving these disciples was not the ability to provide forgiveness, but the ability to proclaim it. To proclaim that it was available to them. One man said Jesus was giving the apostles, and by extension the church, the privilege of announcing heaven's terms on how a person can receive forgiveness. If one believes in Jesus, then a Christian has the right to announce his forgiveness. If a person rejects Jesus' sacrifice, then a person can announce that that person is not forgiven. And I don't want to belabor this, because I know there, there will be disagreement about this, but I do know that we have some who question some of these things, some who have come out of the Catholic Church or are wrestling with some of those differences. And so let me just share with you a couple of reasons why. I believe our view is correct and why I believe their view is wrong. And I'm really quoting from another person here, but let me just share it. Number one, it is a teaching of Scripture reiterated on many occasions that there is none who can forgive sins but God only. The power of forgiving sins is his prerogative. The clearest statement of this is from an incident early in Christ's ministry. Jesus had been preaching in a certain house when friends of a paralyzed man had lowered the invalid through the roof to Christ's feet. He saw their faith and said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Mark chapter 2 and verse number 5. Jesus said that, Son, your sins are forgiven. And some of the scribes immediately objected, saying to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Mark chapter 2, verse 7. And, of course, that was a true statement. It was a true principle. 
And the Lord used it to lead them to consider his claims to divinity. He was showing that in this case, the healing of the body and the forgiveness of sins would be identical. Consequently, when he healed the man, as he then did, it was proof that he had power to forgive sins and was therefore God. Verses 9 through 10. And that argument would be meaningless. Absolutely meaningless. If human beings were able to forgive sins under any circumstances, whatever. So the teaching of the Bible is that it's the prerogative of God. Only God can forgive sins. Number two, there is no instance in any of the New Testament books of any apostle taking on himself the authority to absolve or pardon anyone. This is, this is a powerful argument. Not one time do we see a single apostle, a single disciple, ever saying, I forgive your sins. It doesn't happen. It's important because it relates to a fundamental rule of scripture interpretation, namely that every text must be interpreted within its historical and biblical context and never in isolation. To interpret this text correctly, we must ask what Jesus meant by it and what the disciples understood him to be saying. Did the apostles understand Christ to be imparting to them the authority to forgive sins? Not at all. If they did, they would undoubtedly have claimed and exercised such powers, which we do not find. But what we do find is Peter saying to Cornelius, all the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. He clearly reiterated three times over that remission of sins is in Christ and by Christ. Paul said in Acts chapter 13 and verse 38, through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Proclaimed. He was pointing to Christ alone as the remitter. What the apostles did in these and every other instance is to preach the gospel and declare with authority the terms on which God forgives sins, namely on the basis of Christ's death and through faith in him. alone. Number three. And I'll just mention this one quickly. If the, the view is that he was giving the ability to provide forgiveness of sins, then we have a real problem because there was far more than apostles in that room. Cleopas was in that room. Cleopas' friend was in that room. One of the passages that I read said there were others with them in that room. We don't know how many were in that room. And so if he was providing the ability to, or if he was giving the ability to provide forgiveness of sins, he was giving it to everybody. That means I could forgive your sins, not just priests, not just apostles, but all who were in that room. And then one fourth reason is because of the tenses of the verbs. And I won't get real, real, real uh, berserk on this, but the fact is the, the way the Greek is written indicates uh, that uh, it should be translated have been forgiven, have already been forgiven. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been, have previously been forgiven. Is, is one way of looking at that. So what Jesus was saying here was that we now have the ability to proclaim the forgiveness of sins, not to provide it. I can say to you, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And I have the right, the authority to proclaim that to you. I can say to you that if you will believe Jesus Christ, your sins will be forgiven. And I have the authority to say that today. All believers do. We were given the ability to proclaim these truths. He spoke of proclamation, not provision. One last thing, and with this I'll be done, because we're out of time. Look at verse 27. Verse 27, we've seen peace and purpose and provision and proclamation, finally. Verse 27, he said to Thomas, do not be unbelieving, but believing. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Let's talk for a minute about proof. Proof. Our text describes really two separate appearances of Jesus. We've been talking about the first one that took place on Easter Sunday. But you'll notice that there was a second one that is mentioned here. 
and it was the following Sunday. The first Sunday, Thomas was skipping church. He wasn't with the group. And as a result of him skipping church, he missed out on some really good stuff. And by the way, that's what always happens when you skip church. You ought not do that. He missed out on seeing Jesus. And when they told him that they had seen the Lord, he refused to believe it in spite of all the things that he had heard. In spite of all the witnesses, all the testimony, he would not accept the reality of the resurrection unless he could see it with his own eyes. It's awfully easy for us to get too hard on Thomas. And I don't think we ought to be. Because you know what? I think most of us would have been just the same way. Many of us, anyway, would have reacted the same way. I think some in this room may be struggling with your decision for Christ. And a group of this size has got to be some. You've heard the preaching of the gospel. You've listened to the witness of loved ones, and friends, and co-workers, neighbors. You've felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit in your life, and yet you've not been willing to accept it. And perhaps in your mind you're saying, I just, I need to see it. It's not, it's not, I have to see it with my own eyes or I won't trust it. And you'd like to think it's because you're scientifically minded or you're more enlightened than others. And you're just not going to take something on faith. You have to have evidence. But Thomas is a reminder to us, is he not, that that's not the issue at all. This predates all of that kind of thing. On that second Sunday, Jesus once again appeared in their midst, and this time Thomas was there. And he was given an opportunity that none of us will ever be given. If you're waiting for something that you can see in order to believe, you're never going to see it. Jesus stood before Thomas and said to him exactly what he had asked him to do. He said, look here. He said, look here. That's never going to happen to you. It's never going to happen to me. Thomas didn't reach for them as he said he would. He didn't even look at them, I don't think, as he said he would. He took one look at Jesus Christ and fell at his feet and said, my Lord and my God. And there on his face... Before the risen Savior, he heard something that I've got to believe would have followed Thomas the rest of his life. Jesus said to him, do not be unbelieving, but believing. It's a rebuke. It's a criticism. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. I think Thomas heard those words the rest of his life. I wonder this morning, are you waiting for something that you can see before you will believe? If you're waiting for that, it's not coming. Jesus said, do not be unbelieving, but believing. He told a story in Luke chapter 16 about a rich man and Lazarus. We use this story all the time because it's so rich with meaning. It's such a great illustration. The rich man died and went to hell. Lazarus died and went to heaven. And we learn so much about both places from that story. But there's an interesting little interchange that Jesus relates that took place between this rich man and Abraham. The rich man was in hell. And he was talking across a great divide to Abraham. And he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. Here's this person in hell. And he's saying, send somebody to my brothers. I don't want them to come here. Foolish people who say, I'd rather go to hell where my friends are. You need to read that. You won't want to be with your friends. There are no friends in hell. All you'll care about is making sure they never come there. He was the greatest soul winner around at that time. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Moses and the prophets is just another way of describing the word of God. If they won't listen to the Bible, it won't matter if I send them something they can see. 
It won't matter if they see somebody rise from the dead, if they won't listen to the Bible. Listen, it's a matter of your will. It was a matter of Thomas's will. If you're not willing to hear the truth as presented in the Word of God through preaching or through the testimony of others who have witnessed to you with tears and told you of how Christ changed their life, if you're not willing to listen, even when you individually read it in the Bible, then you will die lost and you will go to hell. It's as simple as that, according to the truth of Scripture. Thomas had an opportunity that you will never have. For there will be nothing other than the word of God that is ever given as evidence. We need to hear the words of the Savior this morning. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. And blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, let's conclude. Here's his first appearance. He's he's not his first appearance after the resurrection, but his first appearance to the group as a whole. And he said some very important things. He spoke of peace. He spoke of purpose. He spoke of provision. He empowered them to proclaim forgiveness. He offered proof to the unbelieving Thomas. And at the same time, he promised blessing to all who would believe without seeing in the future. You know, I think those words that he said to them, he says to us too. And so I would ask in closing this morning, which of those words are for you today?